0: On behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the 2017 November podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for what's going to be another terrific conversation and a lively debate. My first guest is Dr. Ethel Wells, professor of respiratory medicine from the Interstitial Lung Disease Unit at the Royal Brompton Hospital in London. He's here to talk about his editorial, point: Should BAL be Routinely Performed in the Diagnostic Evaluation of IPF? Yes. Ethel, thanks for joining us. Um, my next guest, Dr. Joshua Mooney, Clinical Assistant Professor from the Department of Medicine, the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care from Stanford University in California. And he's here to talk about his accompanying article, Should BAL Be Routinely Performed in the Diagnostic Evaluation of IPF? No. <laughs> so thank you for joining us, Josh. Thank you, Kyle. So, so, guys, let's, you know, give our listeners a, a, a background here. I mean, you know, why are we even having this debate? We'll, we'll get into the details in a second. But, you know, either one of you or both of you, just tell us a little bit about, you know, why there's even a debate or, uh, I guess, even controversy, if you will, about doing BAL or the, or should we or should not be or, you know, the frequency, et cetera, uh, in our IPF patients. So whichever one of you wants to tackle it or both of you. Dive in. I'll have I'll
1: have a go having
0: lived through the
1: guideline process in two thousand and eleven when the IPF guideline was formulated. And I think we're having the debate because of an essential split between views held based on personal experience, expert personal experience over the decades and what we have in the evidence base. So Outside the United States, there's a tendency to perform BAL in suspected IPF, and that's based on personal diagnostic algorithms over the years, but actually the evidence base is at the very least marginal. And so we have this essential split between expert opinion and absence of a be- an evidence base. And so we find ourselves in a situation where a guideline recommendation is made which is a conditional negative. It's made for the whole spectrum of IPF diagnosis, and I'm sure we'll come back to that. But this clashes with decades of, shall we say, informed belief that lavage actually does modify diagnosis in a useful way in this setting. So. Part of this is a cultural difference between the United States and a number of other non-U.S. countries. Part of this is a split between expert experience and formal evidence evaluation. And so we are left with something of a schism.
2: Josh, what do you think? That, that's a, a, a framework for this discussion? I agree completely with Ethel. I think he summarized it well. I think there's um, a, a split between continents as far as the, the use between BAL and tremendous variability, I think, amongst centers and practicing clinicians, um, even amongst, quote, experts, um, ILD and IPF clinicians. And I think, um, uh, you know, that was the the, the just of our our point, counterpoint, um, discussion is to, to dig deeper into those those reasons for variation. Okay, perfect.
0: Well, so Ethel, you wrote the the pro, and so you and that was the first article. So you get to go first. <laughs> um, so so talk to us. Um, you know. Why why should we do BAL routinely in the diagnostic evaluation of IPF? And and I guess from my perspective, when I was reading both your articles, it strikes me that it's the word routinely that seems to be the the sticking point, if you will, between the two opinions.
1: Yes, I think that's fair. But at the start, I think we can reach for some common ground here. Um, And to, to make this point... I'd like to go back to the wording in the 2011 guideline where no formal distinction was made in using BAO between those patients who already satisfied diagnostic criteria for IPF and those patients in whom the diagnosis was in doubt. And I think the word routine makes this an important distinction because we are dealing with two very different clinical scenarios. So do we mean routinely across every patient in whom we are making a diagnosis of IPF who has suspected IPF, or do we mean routinely in those patients who don't meet classical diagnostic criteria for IPF? I might add perhaps the majority of IPF patients and We need to clear this up at the outset, and I would suggest that in arguing for BAL routinely, one would feel far more confident in arguing for this in those patients who don't have classical usual interstitial pneumonia on a scan, and um, in other words, are most likely to have a CT appearance of possible usual interstitial pneumonia. So. I think that's the first point to discuss. Are we going to break down IPF and routine diagnosis into two categories and debate BAL in each category? I would favor doing that, and I wonder what Josh thinks about that.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's um, uh, that's a worthwhile approach and one that we, we discussed in our rebuttal process. I think... Um, you know, IPF diagnosis, going back to the 2011 guidelines, are based on either histiopathologic or radiographic um, evidence of a UIP pattern and certain criteria for a more definitive UIP pattern. Um, as doctor Athel Athol-Wells alluded to, there's also possible criteria. And I think the, the use of... Um, BAL um, in either of these settings in a more confident UIP diagnosis or a possible UIP diagnosis really stems, I believe, from its ability to rule out other causes of um, a possible or definite UIP pattern. And that predominantly uh, you know it gets back to the ability of BAL to um, uh, for us to use the fluid cellularity in BAL. Uh, specifically the presence of lymphocytosis, which um, has been suggested by um, a number of people to have some diagnostic value in distinguishing chronic hypersensitivity with pneumonitis from other in- interstitial lung disease, and I think that um, that ability for the um, the presence or absence of lymphocytosis in in combination with those patterns really is where the the diagnostic utility of of b a l um
0: <clears throat>
2: with a with a um
0: yes. so- be well so so, so let, me help, let me help frame it then for the two of you guys who are at least our listeners. Um, if I'm, If I'm hearing Ethel right, then it, the, you know there's if we broadly look at someone who we're entertaining an interstitial lung disease, there's clearly the group that meets all of the uh, radiographic/ slash clinical criteria and that everyone in the room agrees this is IPF, and yeah. there's an argument then to say we're done. there's no other diagnostic workup needed. Would you still argue Ethel, that this person should still have a BAL? Um, and Look, I, group. I'm bound to... Please, play let's, let's that debate that point. Let's debate that in,
1: point. In, in a debate, and of course in the debate, I left, I left this question open for that group, which is about as strongly as I felt able to put it. Now, let's be clear about the fact that there are still some clinicians in Europe who would argue for that approach, but I have some difficulty being very vehement on that point. I think the chance if you've got classical UIP in the right clinical setting, and I'm not talking about a 35-year-old woman here, but a reasonably typical age and gender group with classic UIP on a scan and no hint of an environmental exposure driving you towards an HP diagnosis, the chance that a lavage will add value is going to be rather low, and I think there are no studies actually that establish that there is gain against downside in that scenario. You again have to point to the few clinicians who still feel that strongly, but I would struggle to sustain doing BAL routinely in that group, and
0: I think this is where we probably have a common ground. Yeah. It's, it strikes me from what I mean, Josh. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what you guys wrote in that group—it seems that that's you would agree. There's no role for a routine BAL in
2: that patient population. Yeah. I, no, I, I agree. I, I I think there would be have to uh, have to have tremendous um, ability for lymphocytosis to be specific to a non UIP or non IPF diagnosis, and I think there's there's chance for. Or even harm potentially in using lympho or use of DAL in that setting. So I I think um, both Athel and I are, are probably in agreement on on that. So so let's let's segue then to the
0: group where we're you know where the clinical pathologic conference is. You know there's there's, there's a head scratching going on. There's a there's a lively debate. Um, there's a question of an environmental factor or it's not a classic patient or not a classic image now I think where it's where you know we can clearly see some distinction between the two opinions of routine application versus non-routine application of it. So why don't we dive into it, Ethel?
1: Yes, and I mean, when we speak about routine, we are talking about a clear majority of patients in this setting and we're supposing that they don't have disease so severe that there would be dangers in BAL. Right. Now, you're in a setting in that group with what has been termed possible UIP on a scan, that is, the disease is in exactly the right place on the scan with fibrotic reticulation, often with traction bronchiectasis, but no honeycomb change. And we have data indicating that in patients with that appearance, the likelihood of IPF, depending on the age, and to a lesser extent, male gender is going to be approaching 80 to 90 percent. And so, you're looking for a shift here to take you to a plus 90 percent likelihood. Now, it does, and it must be stressed, very significantly with age. So, <clears throat> as examined recently in the Brownell manuscript published in Thorax, a Male aged 50 to 60 with a lower traction bronchiectus' score will have something like a 50 to 60 percent chance of having UIP. A decade older with more traction, you are closer to 90 percent. So I think we can talk about a band of likelihood of between 60 and 85 percent and. Hypersensitivity pneumonitis has emerged as the major differential diagnosis. So, what you're really doing is shifting the likelihood to a point where you've got enough diagnostic likelihood to manage us for IPF and not proceed to a surgical biopsy. And this is important because HP and IPF now have such differences in their management. The decision to go to antifibrotic versus immunomodulation therapy. And also because surgical biopsy, when IPF is a suspected diagnosis, does have a significant mortality associated with it. So for both those reasons, BAL in that group is helping us to rationalize surgical biopsy, and it's moving a significant group of patients up to a 90% likelihood of IPF. So that's the basis.
2: Josh? Yeah, I think um, <coughs> Athel I think summarized um, the description of the, the patient um, that BAL would have potential utility and I think um, Dr. Collard and I, I think, both agree uh, when we are writing this that, that there is potential utility of BAL in that population. I think where we differ in this is probably somewhat based on um, Athol's experience over the years and our review of the, the literature is that we feel that the robustness of the literature supporting the ability to Change that likelihood ratio, or have a significant enough likelihood ratio, uh, ratio to change the pre-test probability to a substantial post-test probability for a definite diagnosis is is lacking currently. Um, I think, um, and in that in that setting, um, we would argue that that biopsy is uh, remains the the most definitive. A way to um, to obtain a IP or a, a, an IPF or a UIP diagnosis versus a non UIP diagnosis. Um, I think there's uh, we can get into the, the literature, but I think there's substantial variation as far as the the literature supporting lymphocytosis. Um, a tremendous variation as far as the the groups of populations that they're used in, the prevalence of diseases like HP, and uh, what patients look like as far as their radiographic um, distributions. And I, I think um, there certainly may be a role for BAL, but I, I um, uh, we feel like there needs to be more more evidence in this area before we can support. Um, more routine use of it, even within the possible UIP population.
1: Yes, I might come in here briefly at this point and agree that the literature is woeful, and the problem we have is that the the vast lymphocyte associations with HP, in particular, to a lesser extent connective tissue disease (ILD), um, are based on clinical phenotype work before the modern era, and there's no breakdown of lymphocyte levels in the various HP subsets using um, advanced phenotyping in the last 10 years, what we know of CT in particular. So it makes it very difficult to lead from the evidence base. Now, on the other hand... You talk to people who use BAL a great deal and I, of course, had this conversation before I could be considered to have enough expert experience to join the club. And you hear what they say over the decades. And you are starting to talk about a range of scenarios. So if your diagnostic likelihood of IPF is up towards 80%, 70%, then the likelihood ratios that would not be enough if the likelihood was 50-50 of, say, HP and IPF. The likelihood ratios by excluding a lymphocytosis probably do carry you to a point where it's a key way in which to avoid a surgical biopsy. And we say it's definitive as a test, to surgical biopsy, but I come back to the mortality associated with it. So the Hutchinson series, very large USA database, an overall mortality of 1.7%, but if IPF was strongly in the differential diagnosis, that rose quite significantly, and so we can't be extremely exact, but more like an overall mortality in that subgroup of Closer to 4%. Now, of course, with milder disease, that will drop. With more severe disease, that will rise. But we are talking about a significant mortality. So that's the first subset. Patients with possible UIP in which IPF is the more likely diagnosis, and you really do not want to do a surgical biopsy unless you have to. Then the second subgroup is where HP is actually a more likely diagnosis, but IPF can't be excluded. And that's where a striking lymphocytosis will actually clinch the deal. And very often you will have that finding and you'll go back and re-interrogate the patient. And it's amazing how often when you know there's a lymphocytosis that if you then go back and back that you then find an environmental exposure which is more plausible. Now I realize we should be saying that a really good clinician will find that first time but that isn't actually how it always plays itself out in real life. And in those clinicians that are a little less experienced, a BAO lymphocytosis may be an invaluable guide. So we really have to break down likelihoods of IPF from the probable through the intermediate down to the possible. With HP, the more likely diagnosis, to get a sense of what expert experience is telling us So this is the divide between an evidence base that is woeful and expert experience, which can over-dominate, of course,
0: Can I throw out just a, the, the semi-loaded question to both of you? You know, when the when the guidelines were published, um, uh, you know, the antifibrotic therapies, uh, you know, they were people were aware they were hopefully coming, but uh, they're, they're, they weren't clinically available. They were in study, if I'm not mistaken, and that also the uh, the knowledge of the old attitude of, well, just give them steroids, we'll see how they do. <laughs> clearly didn't uh, bear out as being first do no harm. And so the concern I have is, as, as a person who doesn't do interstitial lung disease, but as I read the debate back and forth between the two of you, is that if the test really is lacking discriminating power, that if I think you have IPF, and I start you on drugs for IPF, but you actually have HP, then I've obviously missed the opportunity to put you on the correct drugs. If I thought you had HP, and the BAL confirmed that, but in reality you had IPF, and I start you on corticosteroids or other you know, immune-modulating drugs, I am actually going to make your IPF worse. And so it strikes me that, that the, the BAL has a pretty high, because you know, I thought to myself, this is a benign procedure as far as the procedure goes. Uh, generally speaking, but that the decision tree that the clinician is going to then embark upon um, has some serious ramifications based on now more modern data that has been published since the guidelines.
2: Thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree, Kyle. I think that's one um, one area of concern. And when you look at the uh, criteria, test criteria for BAL lymphocytosis and its potential uses, although you can see um, certainly the clinical scenarios that it would be used in as, as Athel outlined um, and the you know, potential utility in avoiding uh, surgical lung biopsy, I think the, the real question is um, you know, wh- whether it can lead you to a, a correct diagnosis. And uh, this is you know, of heightened importance now in the era of differing therapies between the two um, diseases, IPF and chronic hypersensitivity pneumonitis, differing prognoses. And um, so, you know, I, I think this is an area where we, we definitely need more, um, more evidence. I, I think we can uh, agree upon the potential clinical scenarios where BAL would be fruitful in, um, in a helping to determine a diagnosis, and I think we could think of uh, strategies going forward about how to study this and, um, and the test characteristics of it, but I think, um, uh, <clears throat> you know, especially when there's, there's a, a more proven um, biopsy uh, method to obtain a diagnosis, um, it, it's hard to go to an unproven modality um, the exception, I, I think, and, and I think we as clinicians struggle with is the patient population that is higher risk for surgical lung biopsy, and, you know, particularly in that population, whether or not use of PAL could be of, of help.
1: Absolutely. I think I'm going to take a somewhat different stance. I mean, what Josh says is eloquent and powerful if you were only really considering CT and BAL and integrating them. But in point of fact, we can break down diagnostic processes into that which is documented well and forms the basis of formal criteria and guidelines. And those data that are used in clinical reasoning that add probabilities. Now, we're not just putting together CT and BAL here. We're putting in age, gender, observed disease behavior. And a BAL lymphocytosis of, say, 15 to 25% doesn't change likelihoods. So when you do the test, you actually have a fair chance that you'll be in that sort of category. Where you're left uncertain, and you know that, and you won't misuse that if you have experience in BAL. A normal lymphocyte count simply shifts the likelihood away from HP towards IPF, but it's very difficult to st- standardize that in an algorithm because you're factoring in observed disease behavior if you have that, and the age and gender, and quite often you've got an exposure which isn't that convincing but could be relevant for HP. So a negative division, that setting is very useful. And the problem is we have so many combinations of age, gender, disease, behavior, implausible exposures, more plausible exposures, and the lavage ranges. These can't really create a two-test algorithm here. Now, if you had a two-test algorithm, and I believe I agree with you, Um, lavage by itself might sometimes misdirect you fairly seriously, but you're actually integrating it with a number of other things. And at the end of that process, you are really saying either we've reached a level of likelihood for IPF, which we accept, or we're short of that, and we have to decide on either a biopsy or empirical management. Um, and I think there's no getting around whatever test we might use. We're going to run the risk that we misdirect our therapies. Either way, I don't think this is unique to the use of BAL at all. True. So, yeah. So, I think it's very difficult to come up with a rigid algorithm for what is essentially clinical reasoning. We have a different level of quality of information in every individual patient, and the multidisciplinary process just explores that, so I don't myself believe that the use of lavage in somewhat experienced hands creates risks of mismanagement.
0: Do we think this is a scenario where, I mean, and I think if I wanted to kind of paraphrase even the both of you, it, it's not so much that the BAL is going to be the 100 percent, and maybe that's the point for our listeners, the BAL is not going to be, if it's, if it's performed in the diagnostic evaluation, it's not the linchpin, and it's definitely not there, and it's in isolation. You know, as we've already said, you have somebody who you're kind of debating between, you know, one or two different diagnoses beyond the IPF you thought they had, that you already have already gone down the pathway of this interstitial lung disease, debated occupational exposures or environmental exposures, et cetera. And the BAL, one would argue, is there to help hopefully push you over the edge into a, a more affirmative diagnosis based on what you were already clinically suspecting. Is that a decent paraphrasing of it? <laughs>
1: Yes, I think that's very fair. So if the lavage lymphocyte count is over 30%, you actually need to scrutinize the case really carefully for a diagnosis other than IPF, usually HP. If the lavage lymphocyte count is under 14%, this nicely supports your impression that you're dealing with IPF rather than HP. And if it's in between, you have some caution in what you conclude. So, so,
0: still, so it still right. comes back to the frequency. So it still comes back to the when to do it, right? I mean, that's going to be the crux of the matter yeah. between the two of you. <laughs>
1: yeah, I think so. And I mean, I think one of the difficulties is that if you're um, dealing with a a patient with possible UIP on the scan age 75 and no overt it triggers your yield for diagnosing HP is clearly going to be a lot lower than if, The patient is 60 to 65 with possible UIP and maybe less traction bronchiectasis. So we have to make an average statement, don't we, which can be a meaningless mean statement because you really want to factor in other considerations. Age, gender, and where the scan lies in a spectrum across possible UIP. Is there a hint of mosaic attenuation, for example? So it's difficult to come up with a one-size-fits-all at the best of times. But I, th- I think you're right. If you're there at 90% already, and I think with many patients with possible UIP in their 70s you are, then you can use the same logic as the classical UIP and question a routine BAL. But otherwise, I would say, you can make a strong case that you would want to consider those data in clinical reasoning.
0: Have, have either of you been in the clinical scenario in your, both your practices where, okay, so you're debating and, and you're not at the 90 percent certainty that this is IPF, um, you're in a more mid-range and, you know, you're now having this conundrum of do we go to VATS biopsy, uh, but maybe we'll discuss doing a BAL or not can you can you give us just your anecdotal experiences of the number of times that the bronchoscopy with BAL has actually steered you down the new path, that you were maybe leaning towards VATS biopsy, but the BAL was so definitively consistent with chronic HP, you know, et cetera, that you you helped avoid a VATS. Because I think maybe in the end, that's a lot of what this is about, is will this test, besides giving you diagnostic certainty and all the issues we talked about with drugs, but can we avoid an unnecessary surgical procedure? Because that's clearly always a good thing for our patients.
1: I believe so. I mean, as somebody who has used BAL a great deal, I know that it actually gives me a diagnostic confidence of IPF in a great many patients, which obviates the need for a surgical biopsy. So I would stand by that. And I believe you've summarized it beautifully. That is the issue, the avoidance of the risks associated
2: with surgical biopsy. Yeah, I and I I think in the the US and certainly in in our center I probably have less experience with BAL use than than Athol and and those in Europe, but um uh, I've had more variable experience um as far as the the BAL um pointing me in the in confidently in one direction. I I do think in a patient with uh, possible UIP um, with risk factors for HP or even some suggestion of uh, inconsistent UIP features on their CT scan, um, uh, BAL can be helpful. Um, uh, I've had a, a theme of, in, in my experience, less utility in those with more probable UIP um, and those with with possible UIP with, with probably higher pretest probabilities pointing me in the direction of, of IPF. Um, so I, I do think, um, you know, there's utility in BAL, I think, as Athel has alluded to in, in, in both, as well as you, Kyle, I think it really has to be taken in the clinical context um, and incorporated with the other uh, demographic features with occupational environmental exposures, with the radiographic findings, I think it's difficult to put um, a, a single algorithm in place for for BAL use or lymphocytosis thresholds that would that would make a, a confident diagnosis.
0: Sure sounds like we need a registry, fellas, <laughs> or something prospective. I'll just throw that out there. We
1: definitely need some, <laughs> something prospective. I, I think what we really need is prospective studies in which a multidisciplinary right. group are asked to reach a diagnosis without BAL information. Then they are given the BAL information, the frequency of a change in diagnosis and a change in investigation strategy needs to be quantified and then that needs to be validated against outcomes. And I think one of the issues is there's a subgroup of HP patients who do badly behave like IPF and the literature indicates they're more likely to have a neutrophilia and many of them don't have a lymphocytosis. Now, in point of fact, you could therefore with Uh, a BAL neutrophilia with no lymphocytosis be misclassifying those patients away from HP. But if they have usual interstitial pneumonia and progress like IPF, maybe you're doing them a favor by actually reaching a diagnosis of IPF and managing this for IPF because heaven's those in that group are traditional therapies often fail. Right. So... Um, That is another key question. So-called misclassification on BAL is it actually giving us key information on subgroup disease behavior. So it might be that it eventually transpires that absence of a lymphocytosis either confirms IPF or it um, identifies that subgroup of HP patients. a UIP that behave like IPF in spite of treatment. Um, and so I just leave that on the table as an open question, really.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think w- one thing that Athol brought up, and I just want to highlight, is I, I do think that um, the prospective studies on this topic that um, are performed without knowledge or incorporation of VAL. Results into the diagnosis is important. I think the studies to date that have looked at this have a significant incorporation bias where their BAL results were part of the diagnostic criteria for, say, HP. So I, I think um, uh, you know, this, this can be looked at um, more clearly. And, um, uh, you know, I, I echo Athol's uh, points about chronic HP, I think we are at a point where we need to explore antifibrotic therapies and other ILDs. I think we need to explore um, the varying heterogeneity of diseases like HP and what it means prognostically and should we be treating different types of HP different. So, uh, a lot more to, to learn both in IPF and, and other ILDs diagnostically and therapeutically.
1: Yes, one thing you can take from the older literature, and admittedly the various terms have changed. Organizing pneumonia wasn't present as an entity in the very oldest series of BAL. But the thing that emerges is a good treated outcome with a prominent lymphocytosis across the ILDs. And in the end, BAL may be telling us more about the right management algorithm than it is necessarily about exact diagnostic classification. Uh Uh, and That's especially going to be the case, as you say, Josh, if antifibrotic agents are going to be used in non-IPF fibrosing diseases, and we have pivotal trials going on at the moment to establish that.
0: That's a good point. So, so, guys, we've been talking for a while. And I want to be respectful of everybody's time. Um, kind of final thoughts or final conclusions or things we haven't touched upon?
1: I just want to go back to the critical importance. It seems obvious to all of us discussing this, but the critical importance of the separation between a very high likelihood of IPF satisfying formal diagnostic criteria and the remaining patients with HP doubt. Now, what we've said about bands of likelihood is more complicated, obviously, but on that point, we have to make a separation between those two subgroups of patients, and I think our common ground is extreme doubt about the added value of BAL in those meeting formal criteria.
2: Yes. Josh. Yes, I, I, I agree with you, Athol. I think there's, there's uh, separate clinical scenarios. There's the definite UIP um, radiographic pattern and without any identifiable cause where I think we both agree that there is um, a limited or no utility of BAL in that population. And then I think the population that we need to look at closer is um, the ability of BAL to help with a, um, a more definitive diagnosis in those with possible UIP or um, some inconsistent features um, of UIP uh, that you're still um, uh, trying to distinguish a, an HP or IPF or other diagnosis, and um, I think that's an, an area um, that's on us as ILD clinicians to um, to better explore in hopes of giving our patients a, a better, um, more definitive diagnosis without um, uh, you know the the risk of, of surgical procedure. Hmm. Fantastic. Guys, thank well, you. Thank, this was a great you.
0: discussion. Final thoughts, Ethel? Do you have another
1: one? No, not really. Um, I, I think, actually, the only thing to say is that In general, the evaluation of tests in interstitial lung disease has been substandard and the concept of added value studies crucial for BAL, but I think it can be applied to a number of other non-invasive tests, including the use of serology, Um, and it really is a needed template for the future. And just to say I'm confident within the non-classical UIP that there will be important subgroups that emerge on prospective studies where BAL is highly informative. And maybe with prospective studies we'll stop talking about routine use in that large subgroup and talk instead about focused use of BAL in more selected patient groups than we can select at
0: the moment. Well, guys, thank you so much. I think this was uh, extremely excellent. The insights that you brought, and and to our listeners, uh, please definitely go read the pro-con. It's a a great discussion uh, that that is expanded upon by today's conversation, but also um, a a wealth of of good literature references uh, so that you can dive deeper into this debate for yourselves and and decide how you're going to best deal with this complex uh, set of questions and problems that, does come up quite often clinically for all of us. So, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time.
2: A pleasure. Enjoyed it. All right. All the best. Appreciate right. you guys, Kyle and thank- Apple. Great conversation. Thank you.